Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 24, we're going to look at exactly half the chapter, or about half the chap- chapter, uh, 60 um, some verses. We're going to look at 1 through 34 this morning. I could only get 20 verses in the bulletin, but I'm going to keep reading to verse 34. And we're going to read all of the text. Last time I want you to just recall as we were in Genesis a couple of weeks ago. What did we see? We saw Abraham humbly and honorably living in this world. Not being corrupted by it or compromising with it. But not selfishly condemning it and, uh, either. But he maintained his integrity as some say. He lived in the world but he was not of the world. And he witnessed to God's glory and he respected and honored his fellow man and he used his gift and graces and opportunities to lift up others and to bless them rather than to condemn them and tear them down. He bore witness to the truth of God in this world even in his mourning. And he showed respect uh, to uh, even unbelievers. And so in today's passage, we return, as it were, to the life of of the Christian, the ordinary life, living in this world in submission to God, instructed by his word, trusting in his promised salvation. That's what I think we see in this text, a wonderful example of living the Christian life. How do we do that today? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We just ask one more time that you would bless it to us, to us, Lord God, that we would hear it and believe it and be changed by it. Father, we need your spirit to quicken your word to us. It ought to do it on its own, but our hearts would be hard apart from your grace. And so cause your word again to find good ground in our hearts for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Here now, Genesis 24, the word of God, verses 1 through 34. This is his perfect word. Now Abraham was old. Well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac." And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness 
to my master Abraham, Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the son of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher from her hand to give him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her, Remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethul, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. And there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The word of the Lord. Uh, A lot can be said about this text. But I really think that we do see here, in, in addition to some other things, a model for living the Christian life. And so I want to take it that way. And I want you to notice, first of all, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, if you've received him, however you want to say it, if you're living for the Lord you're regenerated by the sovereign spirit and you have faith and repentance, then there is no going back. That's my first point this morning. There's no going back. It's been about two years after Sarah's death. We know that from Genesis chapter 25, verse 20, that says Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Rebekah 
um, is uh, the subject of this story. We just get introduced to her at the end. But remember, Sarah gave birth to Isaac when she was 90. She died when he was 100, or when she was 127. So that's 37 years. And our text takes a number of months. And so Isaac's probably, it's probably about two years after the death of Sarah. That means Abraham is about 139 or 140, and he's feeling his age. You see that right off the bat. In the first verse, Abraham was old and well advanced in years. God had kept his promises. As it says, the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. God had told Abraham he would bless him, that Abraham would be a blessing, that he would be Abraham's God, and that Abraham would have a seed and that he would give him the land. Some of these things haven't happened yet. But one of the things that has happened is God has made Abraham's name great. Abraham is a well-known, powerful chieftain to whom kings come out and want to make treaties with. And Abraham's concern in all of his blessing and in all of his wealth is that he would see the promises of God come to pass. Abraham lives for the Lord. That's what's going on here in verses 2 to 4 where he makes his servant take this solemn oath. And a lot's been written on what's going on here, the hand under the thigh and so forth. what, What we can see obvious is that this is the way an oath was taken in that day. This is the ceremony they went through. Might seem strange to us, but to me it's useless to speculate over what was going on, what it meant. And you can read all that stuff and I've read it and I could bring those details to you and it's just a waste of time. Because nobody knows. The only thing that we know for sure is this is a solemn ceremony. The servant understood it. Abraham understood it. It happens again in Genesis chapter 47 when Jacob says to Joseph, his son, put your hand under my thigh. The only two times that happens in scripture. A solemn ceremony of taking a formal oath and vow. Might might seem silly to them that we raise our right hand when we take a vow. Why do we raise our right hand? What does that mean? Again, it's, it's the form that we go through to take an oath and a vow. And oaths and vows are important. They're an, they're an important part of human life. They're an important part of humanity. They're not, oaths and vows don't come in through Christianity or through Judaism or through uh, revealed scripture, as it were, special revelation. Oaths and vows are a necessary part of human existence, human society. If you have a race of human beings who are language-based, who are rational and moral, then you need a way in which we can um, bind ourselves to keep our word because we're fallen and we can lie. And so all societies, all cultures have this. They all have a way in which to bind themselves, people bind themselves and take some kind of formal oath vow in all societies. This is a part of human nature. And it's just a denial of part of human nature to not have them. And it causes all kinds of confusions and disruptions. You can think of the Protestant Reformation when taking an oath and a vow became controversial with some of the radical reformers called the Anabaptists today. Denied all vows and all oaths because they unfortunately took Jesus' Sermon on the Mount hyper-literally where he says, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven above or by the earth beneath. Simply yet let your yes be yes and your no be no. And they said, oh, that means you can never take a vow. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus also in the Sermon on the Mount says, when you give tithes and offerings, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now, how do you work that out, literally? Okay? Hands don't actually know anything, do they? 
He's obviously speaking in a figure. When you pray, go into your closet. Do you have to pray every time in the closet? Jesus himself prayed publicly. No. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about human beings living simply, honestly by faith. And not going through these grand motions and designs and doing it for a show, right? That's what it's about. You know, when we have to swear, you know, I swear to God, I swear to God in ordinary conversation. That's what Jesus is forbidding. Because the only reason we do that is because we're ordinarily dishonest and people know that. And so we have to say, I swear to God, I swear to God. Because, you know, this time I'm telling the truth, me the normal liar. Right? And that's the message that's given. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't be like that. Mean what you say. Say what you mean. But he's not denying there has to be vows and oaths. Jesus himself submits to the vow of the high priest and answers when he puts them under oath. And so don't mistake that here. Vows and oaths are part of human society. What is a vow? What is an oath? It could only be done to God. Notice how Abraham says, the God of heaven, the God of the earth... These are the titles of, the God, of, of, of creator God. He doesn't use uh, in salvific terms there. God of heaven, God of earth. That's the way God is spoken of uh, to pagans in this book, to Abimelech and others. Because again, oaths and vows are part of creation. And God is the God of all people. And you can only swear to God. Because when you take an oath or a vow, you're asking God to be your witness. And God is the only one capable of being a witness of the heart. Because he's the only one that can see the heart. And that's what an oath or vow is. You're literally saying to God, keep me uh, accountable. And if I break my word, testify against me. You testify against me. You hold me accountable. The only one who can. The only one who can see your motivations. The only one who can see your incentives and why you're doing what you're doing. That's why we say, I swear to God when we take a vow, right? A vow of citizenship or a vow to uphold the constitution for a soldier or a vow in marriage. Only God can see my heart, but I call upon him to bear witness. Lord God, keep me accountable. And if I don't keep my word, you hold me accountable. You test. That's why vows and oaths are not to be entered into lightly, right? And this servant does not enter into it lightly. He has some provisos. Notice in verse 5, what if the woman doesn't follow me? You want me to take an oath and a vow to things that I can't control? Sure, I can go. And I can offer, but what if she doesn't come? I don't want to be somebody who breaks a vow to God. And that's what he's saying. And you notice how Abraham recognizes the possibility that she might not come. And he says to him, if the woman is not willing, verse 8, then you're released from this vow. Abraham recognized that she had to be willing to take a vow of marriage. That's another thing with a vow. It can't be forced. You can't force a vow onto somebody. That's tyranny. You have to willingly enter into a vow, right? Uh, A marriage contract has to be done willingly. Both people have to take those vows willingly. If one party doesn't, the marriage isn't valid. We recognize that. Abraham recognized that. If she doesn't come, you're free. All right? But notice the other thing Abraham says. When he says, should I take, you know, if she doesn't come, should I take Isaac back there, back to your homeland, back from where God called you? This is the one thing Abraham is really seriously uh, exhorting him. He says it twice in verse 6 and verse 8. Do not take my son back there. Beware. And again at the end of verse 8. Only do not take my son back there. Why is he so afraid for Isaac to go back to Ur of the Chaldees? Because God called Abraham out of that place. 
The calling of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees into the promised land is, the, is a picture of the salvation that Abraham has. When he said yes to God, when he obeyed and believed God and followed God, he left his old life and he became a believer. He became Abraham the believer who lives by the word of God. That's why his son can't go back. To go back to that place is to, is to deny that God ever called him. Is to say, I don't believe that this land is my land. I've got to go back now. I've got to leave the land of promise. That's why Abraham is saying, whatever you do, don't do that. Because I'd be not denying God. I wouldn't be believing in God's salvation anymore. Remember, God's salvation is tied up in Isaac having a child. And so you can't turn back, beloved. And that's true for us. When you come to Christ, many of you have come to Christ later in life. But even if you've always known the Lord, you can't turn back to that life in the world that you can see just as clearly as I can who lived it for a time. You can't go to that. You can't live like you don't know Jesus anymore. You can't, as I said shortly into my uh, converted life, you can't take a vacation from God. It's not appropriate, right? Well, I'm just going to dip my foot back in the pool a little bit, you know, again. Check out the world again. I'll come back to Jesus after I have my fun. That's like an unregenerate heart talking. You shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want the world. This is why scripture is so insistent on you cannot go back. You can't go back. You can't long for the, the life of death that you had in this world. Jesus says it in Luke 9, 62. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now again, he doesn't mean the literal, you know, you're plowing the field. Oh no, I look back. That's not what he's talking about, right? Putting your hand to the plow, serving God, doing, you know, being, becoming a servant of God, a worker for God in God's field. You can't long to be somewhere else. You can't have your heart in the world. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not fit for the kingdom then. The same thing is uh, taught in Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul is not pleased with him. I can't say that I love Jesus and live for Jesus, but really, uh, you know, I'm kind of torn and I want to go back to the world. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said in, in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. He was talking at that time about wanting to have your life in this world because he goes on to say, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will save it. Again, How do you understand that? Well, if I give up my life for Christ, if I give up my life in this world, I'm not living for self anymore, I'm not living for pleasure, I will will be saved because I'm living for Jesus. But if I try to hold on to this world and have it and live for it, I'm going to lose. At the end, when I die, I'm going to lose because this world was my God and not Christ. And so, beloved, you cannot turn back. If you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you live for him, not on Fridays, not on Fridays and Sundays, every day. And in everything, and in every relationship. It can't be that here's my church friends, and here's my unbelieving work friends that I tell dirty jokes with, and I you know, act just like them, hide my Christianity. That's looking back. You've got to be real. It's got to be real all the time. I'm not saying you have to go around reading scripture to everybody, but you have to be a servant of Jesus wherever you are, and you can't be ashamed of that. There is no going back. Secondly, God will provide. 
God will provide. You can see how this necessarily has to follow. Well, if I don't go back, if it's not me going back to get what I need, then God better provide it. Then it better be that while I follow the Lord, I have all that I need. And that's what I want you to see next. Abraham's concern was also his hope. Verse 7. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family. That's why, you know, don't go back. That was his concern. Who spoke to me. Notice all these things of faith. He took me. He brought me. He spoke to me. He swore to me. Saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel. He will send his angel before you. He will make it happen. Abraham's faith was in God. His faith was in God to provide. All right? Now we've got to recognize here that Abraham is talking about the salvation that God has promised him. The salvation that God has promised him is tied up in Isaac having a seed. Okay? What you can't do with this text is say, well, if I want my child to be married and I believe my child's going to be married, then God's going to provide, right? Or I want a house, God's going to provide. I want a school, God's going to provide. God's going to provide my job. God's going to give me riches. God's going to give me health. God's going to provide, you know, all this stuff that God actually hasn't promised you. There are people who are serving the Lord right now who are in prison for their faith. What's God provided for them? There are people right now in hospital beds, Christians, dying, dying of cancer, dying of something else. You know, they can't say, God's going to provide if I believe enough. What God does provide is his presence. What God does provide is his love. What God does provide and will never not provide is he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never not give you the grace To turn away from that sin. He will never let your faith die. He will never let your repentance die. He will not lose you. Because it's not how how tightly you're holding on to him. It's how tightly he is holding on to you. And he will not let you go. That's what God promises to provide. And that's why Abraham says, you know, does he, was he given a special revelation that God said, I'm going to send an angel? Or does Abraham just know that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And that may be the way God will do it. And that's what Abraham means. God's going to do it. An angel, a messenger. We've seen them before. We've seen angels show up to Hagar twice. We've seen angels come and rescue Lot. So we know that they work for God. They serve him, and Abraham knows that. But whatever the case may be, Abraham's faith is in God, is in God not in angels. It's in God. God's going to provide a wife for my son because he said that he will bless the world through my seed. So my son's got to have a seed. And so God's got to do it. Abraham's learned a lot. Remember before when he was told he and Sarah were going to have a son and Sarah wasn't able to have a son? Oh, well, maybe Hagar will work. And they tried to figure it out themselves. Not, not this time. God will provide my servant. He will provide a wife. Abraham believes. Again, God doesn't promise us health, wealth, house, car, job, prosperity, happiness. He promises us salvation, forgiveness of sins, his presence. He will keep us in faith and repentance, and he will give us all that we need to serve him. Absolutely. All that we need to serve him, whether you're president of the United States or about to be executed. God will give you all that you need. 
That's what faith is, to believe that, to believe that God is on your side. And he is, if you're a Christian, God is on your side. He is with you. He is for you. He will always be on your side. He has saved you. Abraham's faith in God for a spouse, for Isaac, you've got to understand this, is faith in God for salvation through the seed of Isaac. It's not just, you know, I'm hoping for a spouse, therefore God has to give it to me. Um, you know, this, this book is actually the largest chapter in the book of Genesis. Did you know that? This chapter, 24, largest chapter. The whole thing's simply about getting a wife for Isaac. Whoop-de-doo. You know, another guy gets... I mean, marriage is important and everything, but in the scheme of things, really? You know, I mean, when we're talking like, like Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, this picture of the cross of Christ... We get like tons more verses here and all these details about what's going on here. Well, you have a son that was born beyond the power of nature, promised to come, through whom salvation would be brought. And the father who sends and prepares and takes all of these steps to secure a bride for his son, the promised son, the seed. It could not come by natural means. Beyond Sarah's years of childbirth, and she conceives and bears this son by supernatural means. And now the father sends forth again to get the bride. You see what I'm talking about. This is a picture of Christ and his church. And how God will secure this bride who will be the beautiful bride for his son. And in this faith, beloved, that we have in this salvation, as Abraham had faith in this salvation that was coming through Isaac. We know how it's come through Isaac's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. He will will give you what you need to serve him. And so thirdly, we must follow. We must follow. God will provide. Doesn't mean, well, I can just sit back and do nothing. Right? I have to live the Christian life. I have to follow. Isn't that what Abraham does here? Why does he make his servant take a vow? Why does he send him to find a wife? Why doesn't he just say, well, God's got to bring a wife down and she's got to fall out of the sky because he's got to keep his word and I can just do nothing. No, we're supposed to live by faith and God has promised to actually bring his promises to pass through us living by faith. We are the secondary means that God has ordained and predestined from before the foundation of the earth. God providing doesn't mean, well, I don't have to pray. God's going to provide. God's going to have his elect, right? You know, this idea that, well, I can't pray for salvation because everybody's predestined. God has predestined the elect, and he's also predestined that the elect are going to be saved through the prayers of his people. I should pray more, knowing in God's provision. I should be inspired to pray more because I know God's going to use my prayers because he swore to do that. I should do all that I can, knowing that the God who has predestined all things has predestined all that I do for good purposes. Predestination should inspire you to live more for God, not paralyze you. If it wasn't that God predestined everything, why would you do anything? Maybe God will use it, if you let him, whatever that means. That God has predestined all things? Everything I do has purpose. Everything I do has meaning. Everything I do has significance. And I don't know what it is, but I know the more I do, the more glory God will get. 
Why aren't we doing more if we really believe it? If we really believe we should be praying more, doing more, because God swore he will use us. And we see Abraham taking all of these steps again, and the servant taking all these steps. Notice how he gets the camels, and he gets all sorts of possessions, because he's got to have a dowry to give to this woman that the Lord's going to lead him to. And he takes servants, too, because he's got to have protection. He doesn't just, again, presume upon God. He has to live out and pursue the promises of God. Yes, God will provide. But I guarantee you this, you're not going to grow in the faith if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not praying, if you're not coming to worship. God's going to provide and grow you as you pursue and seek him. You never trust in any of those things because none of them deserve it. But those are the means that God uses. And we trust him for that. We ask him to do it. Notice how this servant, he has to do a lot. Do you recognize that from where Abraham is sending him to Mesopotamia is 450 miles? It's going to take at least a month to get there. Just to get there. And, you know, through dangerous territory and everything else. And the man does this. He takes all of the precautions that he does. He takes, he, he prepares, Abraham is prepared. And notice when he gets there, again, all right, God's going to send the angel and God's going to provide the wife. But does that mean he just sits back and waits for her to just show up on the doorstep once he gets to Mesopotamia? No, where does he go? Notice it. He goes to the well. Because he knows that in those days, the industrious, the hardworking, the loving and generous women that care about their families are going to go out to that well in the evening. He doesn't go to the pub to seek a wife for Isaac. He doesn't go to the bordello or even the playhouse. He goes to the well. Because this is where women who care about, who love, and who protect and provide for their family go to get them the water that they need for life. This is where the industrious, generous, hardworking women go. And that's the kind of wife that he's supposed to seek. Right? It's a lesson in here for you young people who are of marrying age and single. What kind of spouse are you going to seek? Where do you go? Do you go to where godly people are? Where people do godly things, responsible things, where you can see respect and compassion. Generosity and care. That's what the servant does. He goes to the well and he prays. That's the other thing that we need to do as we're living the Christian life. Pray for God's blessing. Pray for God's guidance. He prays beginning in verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. Show kindness to my master Abraham. What is that? You know, Lord God of my master Abraham. Is he saying that God is not his God? No. He's praying by faith. In the name of the one to whom God has made a covenant of salvation. That's like saying God of Jesus. In Jesus name. The promise of salvation is to Abraham. He doesn't know Jesus name. Nobody knows the name of Jesus at this time. They know Abraham is the one through whom God is going to save through his seed. That seed will be named Jesus. Some people in the future will know that. But he knows the promises through Abraham. So when he says God of my master Abraham. He's saying God of the promised salvation. Abraham is the one whom God has promised salvation. You can't know God except through the God, uh, the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And so this is his faith in God's word when he says this. I believe that you spoke to Abraham. I believe salvation is coming. So therefore, do what you said to Abraham. Keep your promises, Lord. That's exactly what we mean when we say in Jesus' name. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name because he is worthy. You've made promises to him. Do what you said you would do for Jesus' sake, not for me. 
That's what he's saying when he says, to my master Abraham, God's promised salvation to Abraham. And so his faith is in God's word. He's following God. He's pursuing God. And we've got to do that for, for the good things in life that God tells us to seek. You know, are you looking? Are you, do, you, do you need a job? Are you really looking for work? Are you doing it the proper way? Are you drawing up the resume the way it should be? Are you seeking the proper tools to do that? Or are you just showing up in rags and, and stinking and expect someone to hire you because you prayed to Jesus? You've got to do the proper things. We've got to live out the Christian life. If you're going, if you, if you want a good uh, uh, career, you should study at college and seek a good major. Right? You want to grow in the faith. You should be in the word, in prayer, going to church. But you should be doing these things in order to glorify God. I want to emphasize that. We never seek things as an end in themselves, even good things. We seek them for the glory of God. Don't forget who you are. Remember the title of my sermon, Are You a Servant of the Lord? How you live your life shows that. Everything that you do should be done for the Lord. I want to go to college for the Lord. I want to get married for the Lord. Remember Hannah? She wanted a baby so desperately. What did she say she was going to do? Lord, I want a baby because I'm going to be a really good mom and I'll really feel fulfilled if you give me a baby and it's all about me and getting my fulfillment and being this good mom and, and you know, I, I really want to be happy and don't you want me to be happy? No. She says, God, give me a son and I'll give him to you. I'll give him to you. I want a son to glorify you. I want a son to serve you. Beloved, that's got to be what our life is about. We want the blessings of God in order to bless God, in order to glorify God and to serve God. We exercise faith and we trust in the word of God and we humble ourselves and we show ourselves to be, again, responsible, respectful, Generous. Do you recognize when this woman says, I will water your camels? Remember how, how many camels? Ten? Do you know how much water a camel drinks? I didn't. I looked it up. <laughs> 25 gallons. One camel can drink up to 25 gallons. That's 250 gallons with a pitcher in a trough. That's going to take some time. And she doesn't say... I'll water your camels a little bit. She says, I'll water them until they finished drinking. Again, this servant, he's out there. He's praying to God. He's trusting in God. He goes to the well, and then he sees a beautiful young woman who he sees as a virgin, and these things also are necessary, and that's the one he runs up to. You know, he doesn't, again, wait for God. Oh, I'm going to test God. He runs up and asks her to do the very thing that he prayed. Now, he does pray for, in a, in, a, in a sense, a sign, right? Lord, let it be that the one who does this. Now, I, I want to caution you on this, okay? He is part of the unfolding and the working out of the plan of salvation, which God is giving ongoing revelation to at this time. He has revealed these things, all right? And that's why it was appropriate for this servant to ask for a sign. He is actually in the plan of God accomplishing salvation and revelation is accompanying that. Same thing with Gideon when he puts out the fleece. An angel appeared and spoke to Gideon. Therefore, it's appropriate at that point to say, Lord, I just want to make sure that this is you and you ask for the sign. You and I are not there. Okay? Now, if an angel speaks to you, you can forget everything I just said. You can ask for a sign. 
okay? You better make sure it's an angel, though. But, uh, but, but I'm serious. You know, this, this, this was the case. And I know many Christians do this. You know, if the next car that goes by the house is red, then I'm supposed to ask Susie to the prom or something, you know? I mean, don't say you haven't done something like that in your life at some point. If this happens, then God must be blah, 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 blah. How do we know how to follow God? How do we know when it is God? First of all, it has to be something according to his word. Abraham is sending the servant back to his home where there was some faith in God because he knows his son has to marry a believer. If you're a young single person here today, recognize number one, if you're looking for a spouse, it has to be a believer. You can't even consider an unbeliever. He's sending the the man back to his house. He knows that much. That's according to the word of God, right? And then she's got to be a virgin. That was important. Remember the purity of the seed? I talked about this in Deuteronomy. It wasn't like virginity was some like, you know, idolatrous thing that it's better than, you know, it's better to, to be a virgin or a nun or a monk or something than to be a married person. That's not what scripture means. Right, there are reasons for that. Number one, the, 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 the Messiah has to be able to trace his seed back and his line back. And so it has to be pure. Plus, sex outside of marriage is a sin. So that's part of it, too. This was a moral woman. So that's, they're telling us that, too. But they didn't understand pregnancy. They just thought that the man planted his seed in the woman. And at some point, that seed produces a child to the man. And that the woman really didn't provide anything more than like the soil. They didn't understand half the DNA is the man's and half the DNA is the woman's and all of that. But all they know that if a man does plant a seed in a woman, how can a man after that, even years later, understand, recognize maybe that's not my son? They didn't recognize that sperm only lives four or five days in a woman. I mean, there are so many things they didn't understand that made virginity necessary. Understand that. So it's not like that's some kind of idol here. But again, this is what God is promising salvation through. And so this man is is taking these steps, but there's so much that God has guided him in. Again, going to the well is wisdom. Looking for a woman who's industrious is good. And then asking for this sign whereby she's going to show herself to be a very generous woman, right? A very servant-hearted woman. You know, drink and I'll water your camels. How many of them are going to say that? Notice the sign he doesn't ask for. Uh, Ma'am, can I have some water? Shut up and get it your own. Let the, let the man who says, let the woman who says, shut up and get it yourself be the wife for my, my master's son. Right? Right? He doesn't ask for that kind of sign. There's a lot of things here we can notice, right? That's good and godly. In other words, we can know from God's word and God's law many things that we should be doing. And ways to do it. We're not in the dark. But also God in his providence guides us. God in his providence will show us certain things. Matthew Henry says it this way. And so this brings me to my fourth point, trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereignty. How do we know how to follow him? So, all right, it's not appropriate for you to ask for a sign. I I don't believe that it is. You're putting God to the test then. We live by faith now. Christ has already come. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He guides us. All that we need for every good work is the word of God and the spirit of God, and we have both. Right? To ask God for a sign is, I think, really not trusting in him the way that we should today. But how then do we follow? Again, I've already said many things in the word that we can see, all right? Um, but Matthew Henry says this. He says, all right, we have the word. We know God's in control of everything, right? And so we don't have to force things. We don't have to make things happen ourselves. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, huge mistake, right? And we don't lead. 
And we don't follow, or we, we, we don't lead, we follow, and we don't put God to the test. Matthew Henry says it this way, in general, we set God's will before us as our rule. God's law is what he means, God's preceptive will. And he will, by hints of providence, direct us in the way of our duty and give us an indication of what his mind is. Isn't that the way we follow him? All right, I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to, you know, do the things I'm supposed to do as a Christian in my position, at my age, in my responsibility. I'm going to try to love God and love others. I'm going to walk in this. And then I'm going to wait for God, right, to lead me in the places that he wants me to go. And he'll do that. And it might not be what you want in the flesh. It might be that the thing God has to do is do a work in you for a while and get you to look sort of weaned off of something that's actually leading you away from God or it's actually is a little bit too important in your life and that you have to be willing to let go so that Christ can be first, all right? But Psalm 32, 8 says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Matthew Henry cites that verse when he says this. It's always his will that we obey. It's never his will that we sin, right? And we pursue him. And you know, there's, there's a lot of, There's a lot of freedom that we have in this. You know, it's a great privilege. It's a noble purpose. It's a high calling that we have to live the Christian life. Freedom. And God's going to use what we do. We recognize that. We don't have to say, oh, gee, I don't know if God wants me to wake up at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. I better stay in bed until God gives me a sign. No, you're supposed to get up and work and do your job, right? You don't worry about that kind of stuff, that minutiae. But God will direct you. Again, as you pursue him, he'll lead you in the places that he wants you to go. And you don't have to worry if you're outside his will because that's not possible. And maybe it's his will that you stumble for a while. And you stumble around and you wait and you have to wait. And God's teaching you to wait. Wait on the Lord. How many times? We looked at that already. But it's a great privilege. It's a high calling. It's a noble purpose. It gives your life meaning that everything you do is part of God's will. It's his plan in your life. You've got to believe that, even when you sin. No, you shouldn't have sinned. But if you repent of that sin and believe in him, he's going to make that turn to good in your life. I'm living proof of that. I wish I wasn't converted the way I I was. I wish my friend was still alive. But God used that to save me. And I wish it didn't take, wouldn't have taken that. I wish I would have came earlier, but that's what it took. And that's what God did. And I became a believer. And so it's, it's, It's freedom, but it's responsibility as well. But you're made in his image. What else would you expect? Your life matters. Your decisions matter. What you do is important. And yet God is sovereign. You can trust in him. And he will be at work in your life. It's funny when you see the servant praying to God about, you know, let the woman be this or that. Even before he finishes his prayer, because he asked, and again, he's in that supernatural time, God shows him Rebecca. In other words, God had sent Rebecca before he started to pray. She had to be coming long before he prayed. But this is how God uses our actions and our faith to bring about good things. We trust in his sovereignty. That doesn't mean inaction. Again, that means I should be even more active. 
and I should be a, a servant. This woman is a servant. And he recognizes that. And this, ma- this servant of Abraham is a servant too. Did you see this? I used to look at this chapter. And again, it's the largest chapter in Genesis. What is it, 67 verses or something like that? And again, I know they didn't have chapters and verses. But it's the longest event described in the book of Genesis. And all that ink is given to this text. Because again, God is showing a father who loves his son who was supernaturally born. He's going to provide this beautiful bride. And this woman who shows herself to be a beautiful and godly woman. And he sends his servant to make her ready. The servant's confidence was in God's promise to Abraham. He had faith in God's salvation. And this is how you live your life. You have faith in God's promised salvation. That God is with you. You walk according to his word. And your life really is. A mission from God. Notice what the servant says. He, he won't eat until he does his work. Doesn't know what Jesus said a good servant is? He comes in from the field. He doesn't prepare food for himself. He prepares for the master first. And that's what this servant does. I'm not even going to eat until I speak my errand. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. Well, guess what, beloved? You and I are servants of the great king, Jesus, who right now sits on the throne. And you are on a mission to live for him. To glorify him. And the whole world is filled with options for you. Just trust in him and follow him. Be pursuing mightily after him. Don't sit back and wait. Pursue the Lord. And recognize he'll use all that you do to glorify him. If you trust in him and are seeking to serve him first. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for this godly servant who served Abraham so well. What a model for all of us to serve you. That we would put you and your glory first. And that we would trust in your promise. And that we would act according to faith in your word, Father God. And act wisely as this servant did. All of these things are good lessons for us. But most of all, Lord God, we see in this text how you did indeed secure the mother of the seed of of the woman, the Savior Jesus, whom Rebecca would now be in that line. That was your plan. Nothing could stop it. And nothing can stop your salvation of us and your using us. We just pray, Lord, that we would be more pursuing you, that we would be able to glorify you more, serve you more. That's our heart's desire. Help it to be ever more our heart's desire. And help us to do it, Lord to serve you more. Do mighty things in us. Show that you are a God who can even glorify yourself through people like us and show it in a powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.